Hello, hello, and welcome to Cut Reveal, a podcast where we talk about the editing art form and all the hurdles that come with that career path. As always, my name is Piotr, and I'm here with my co-host, Ricky. How's it going? In the flesh. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we have an exciting interview with Ace Editor, Mike Sale. Mike edited Black Adam. That's right. I mean, I'm sure everybody's heard of Black Adam, considering it's the biggest, uh, well, it's got The Rock, who arguably is the biggest star right now. Um, and it's also part of the DC franchise. And this, I think, is also the, the first superhero film that The Rock has been a part of um, within the DC universe. He hasn't been in the Marvel universe. But anyway, so that was exciting to talk to Mike about that. He also worked on a slew of other films mm-hmm. ranging from all over the place. If you look at his IMDb, it's super eclectic. There's series and um comedies and other action films and then i think this was yeah the first like superhero film but also not the first rock film that he's also edited Mm -hmm. but yeah Yeah, yeah. mike being so gregarious and telling us all about his um his start was uh was very interesting and very helpful he was also an assistant editor for for wonder years which is that's right awesome shows (laughs) yeah yeah that's kind of the way he started in the industry anyway uh without further ado let's roll the tape Do you want to say a little bit about like how you got into editing? I would love to. First of all, like uh, both of you, I have a passion for filmmaking and in particular editing. Um, I was like the kid in school that was uh, really smart, but the teachers didn't really know what to do with me. Uh, and so they were like, he should be in the play, you know, like he, he should, he, this guy should be performing. And I was like, okay. So at a very young age, you know, I was actually on the stage, like, you know, doing like local theater and things like that. And, and this was a long, long time ago. And, um, our high school actually had a radio station. And so I actually started uh, in seventh grade when I was about 12 or 13 years old. I had a radio show, and, and you're going to love this. The first show I had was one hour long, and it was the polka hour. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, when you're a 13-year-old kid and your parents are from Scotland – and you don't really know much about polka mu- music. It's hard to do a good radio show. Um, but I survived the polka hour and I, I moved on uh, and, you know, did lots of other radio shows. But I was also doing a lot of comedy and we were making comedy, writing comedy. And that led to sort of doing sketches, which led to editing them and layering in like music mm. and sound effects. And back then it was like I was doing it on audio cart tapes where I was splicing tapes together or layering, like re-overdubbing and re-recording. And um, what happened was when cable TV came into the community, they gave our high school the public access uh, television station and everybody sort of grabbed at the cameras and I grabbed at the editing equipment. And so this would be when I was about 16 years old and I started editing stuff and I quickly realized if I edited this stuff, I didn't have to be the person on stage, <laughs> you know, failing, <laughs> bombing on my comedy routines. You know, I could make stuff behind the scenes that I knew worked and I could, you know, make fun of somebody else or, you know, stuff like that. So uh, that's how I basically got into editing. And like you, uh, Ricardo, I'm self-taught. And, you know, I started just doing stuff and 
showing things to people. You know, it might be they might have a road race in town and we'd send all the kids out to shoot footage of people running, all the people in the town. And we would, you know, this was in the 70s. So we'd cut it to like Bob Seger running against the wind. And, you know, we'd bring it down to the local community place and play the videotape on a TV and everybody would see themselves and they'd cheer and they'd go nuts. And I was like, all right, you know, I I like to do this. And um, simultaneously, I was very much into movies. uh, And so I was working, cleaning a movie theater on the weekends. I'd get up at seven in the morning when I was 14 years old and I'd clean the theaters and they would let me see all the movies for free. So from like 1978 to like 1986, I was, saw all those movies hundreds of times with audiences and I would see the audience wow. react. And I would, so I was kind of doing it and I was kind of watching it. And I just, you know, by the time I got to college, I was like, okay, uh, I know I want to like make movies. I know I want to be an editor. I was very young and uh, actually school wasn't really going great for me. I was mostly cutting people's projects, you know, on the side. And, and, uh, I love doing that so much. So when I was 21, I had never really been, uh, West of like Massachusetts, you know, which, uh, is 3000 miles from Los Angeles, California. And, uh, I was working in a factory in our local hometown, uh, and I was just like, you know what, I'm going to drive to Los Angeles and try to see if I can do it. And I just, you know, my attitude was like, the factory will be there if I fail, <laughs> you know, like I was like, this job is going to be here if I don't uh, uh, survive. So I moved out to Los Angeles. It was, of course, extremely challenging to break into the business. I didn't have a lot of contacts. I had a few people from college that were already out there. So I did get a little bit of work. Um, but the first four or five months, you know, was like survival, trying to survive. And, um, but then I slowly, you know, got a job where I got people coffee and, and then I got a job where I got the editor's coffee. And then I saw they had an editing machine and I stayed late every night learning how to work it. And then eventually the assistant editor had a wedding on a weekend and they needed somebody to work that machine on the weekend. And I, came in and somehow didn't fail, which is amazing because I didn't really know what I was doing. And, and so um, it was right when film was being replaced by electronic editing. And um, mm-hmm. I was young enough. I was like of the video game generation. And a lot of the film editors were older and they were having trouble adapting. But I was like, A, dumb enough to not know that I couldn't do it. And B... Uh, eager enough to to stay there, stay up all night until I succeeded, right? If I had to. And so uh, the timing was unbelievable. So within a year, I got, uh, you know, went from PA to an apprentice editor on a movie of the week, which was non-union. And then my first big break was a, a very low budget movie. And it's, it's, uh, it's actually... On, on the worst movies of all time list, which I'm now very proud of, but it's a movie <laughs> in hindsight, it's a movie called the garbage pale kids. And, uh, I've seen it. Yeah. I've yeah, seen I it. still have, uh, look, I, I've got the, uh, I've got the cards. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I, I got that's awesome. Card. But, uh, it was a $1 million movie 
And uh, I was the assistant editor on it. And the, it uh, went union while we were making the movie. So I got in the union. And also the people making that movie were so kind to me. And they just knew that I didn't oh, really know right. anything other than this machine that we were working on. And in that eight-month period, they taught me everything that I could learn about movies in eight months. So it was like a magical thing. And then very shortly right after that, I got on the pilot to the Wonder Years. And that TV show really became my film school. I worked on it for about three years. And by the time it was done, I was 25 years old. I was established in the community as an assistant editor. I was able to support myself. And I had learned just, you know, an incredible amount about storytelling, character development, uh, things way beyond editorial, you know, like just how everything functioned, the camera department, the sound department, mixing, you yeah. know, it was, it was, I, I mean, it couldn't have had more good fortune when I first moved to Los Angeles. It was crazy. Being an assistant and like your first credits basically are, you know, being an assistant editor. I have heard like editors saying that it's still the best way to get into editing, but I'm curious about your approach. Like, has things changed? Or do you still think that, like, getting into editing by doing assistant editing first is, like, you know, very beneficial? What's your take on it? Yeah, I, actually, I do. I'm a big, I'm a big believer in mentorship. And, mm-hmm. and like, for me, mm-hmm. um, those years that I did that, and, and, and remember, I was editing little projects the whole time. But working mm-hmm. with those editors who had been editing for 20 or 30 years, I mean, it, it gave uh-huh. me an invaluable foundation for the rest of my career. And, and so I think like mentorship is a really fantastic way to learn not only uh, editing, but filmmaking in general. Um, it's hard because, you know, when we're young, time goes slow. And uh, and it's hard to wait and be the one in the background and learning. But look, I'm a person. It took me over 20 years to get an agent. I didn't cut my first feature film until I was in my 40s, right? But when I did, I had success with it because I was ready for it. And the reason I was ready for it is all the uh, effort and learning. Now, look, if I could have made it go 10 years faster, would I have made it go 10? Of course. Of course I would. I always thought I was <laughs> yeah. ready, you know, but the things that I learned from all those great editors, you know, are with me every single day. And what I tell people is the craft of editing is like one of my favorite things about it is it's a thing that you never stop getting better at if you keep doing it yeah. because every project mm-hmm. as you know everything you learn a little trick and you go oh i'm going to remember that one for the next time and and you come yeah. up with way oh that solves that kind of problem and so um you know being able to have people look at my scenes and give me advice and guide me and instruct me and you know uh, like even just watching performances like spending hundreds of hours with directors and editors mm-hmm. looking at raw footage of actors and seeing what they pick and looking for like just the twinkle in the eye and the little thing or the little smile on somebody's lip, you know, and learning that by then seeing what they choose, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it was, it's incredibly fortunate. And so I try to be a really good mentor. So with my assistants, uh, what I do, you know, with technology, 
it's really creates a barrier between the editor and the assistants because, you know, you could be mm-hmm. a in different locations. Everybody's on different machines and the jobs are very mm-hmm. different, like bringing stuff into an avid and categorizing it and doing all the technical stuff and understanding exports and files and things like that is a very different skill set than crafting a performance, you know? So I mm-hmm. encourage yeah. all of my assistants from the, 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 you know, every person in the room from the PA on up to engage creatively in the film. And I bring them in and run stuff with them. And I listen to them. We talk about the footage and I explain to them why I'm doing stuff. And, and for assistants who are learning and they can take their time to cut a scene and show me, I work with them. And what I try to do is mentor people. And, and I worked for an editor who's, who taught me this. It was this great lady. You can look her up named Millie Moore. She was from another time. And she was tough as nails and, and, and really fantastic. But she's, she smoked and she said, Michael, I want to I wanna push you up and out, not down and out. <laughs> you know? And so her, she was very hard on me, you know? But, but she, what she wanted you to do is learn and grow and move on. She didn't want you to get trapped as an assistant, you know? And so what I try to do is have my assistants come with me and and create with me and learn from me and then go on and create and and make their own things you know that's awesome that's amazing that's so nice to hear because we we don't hear a lot about not to say that it doesn't happen with other editors that we've talked to but i think you're the first person to talk to us about mentorship and we know we have friends that have mentors as well but to hear you say it in the way that you're saying it is is uh really heartening it's pretty awesome by the way i'm i'm because like you know, I'm asking about like assistant editor route because, uh, again, I've heard it a few times. Like, for example, Tom Cross, I think he also says that it's like a great way to to get into editing by doing assistant work first. Yeah. Uh, but I think that you're more stressing the fact that the mentorship the mentorship is important rather than assistant route particularly, right? I I mean. It's good to be an editor that knows all the technical stuff that an assistant knows because it makes you a better manager. But um, mm-hmm. but I think if I was the assistant, uh, I, and hopefully I want to be an editor, not all assistants do because it's, it's its own craft, and I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But for the ones that do want to be an editor, it's great if you're in a situation where you're getting both of those things, you know. And that's really goes back to the studio system. You know, the old movie studios, the way it worked with editing is if you want to be an editor or a sound editor, uh, you started actually in shipping and receiving because you would take the film and the negative and the sound to all the cutting rooms. And then you would work your way through the sound department editorial. And, yeah. and once you mm-hmm. became a sound editor, you then could become an assistant picture editor. And then you'd work your way up to editor so that if you were the editor, you mm-hmm. knew what everybody else did. And, and that was how mm-hmm. it used to go. So in the technical world, it is very valuable to know what everybody else does. You know, it's hard to there's a lot mm-hmm. more people now in post-production doing a lot more things. You have thousands of people working on visual effects and you can't possibly know exactly how all those people do all those things. But, you know, the more you know, the of better. It, it's it's wild yeah, yeah. what it is. Now. Especially on the film like Black Adam, right? <laughs> well, in, in something like Black Adam, I mean, it is the ultimate group effort. Like there are literally thousands of people working on the movie 24 hours a day all over the world, right? And um, we're sort of in this little hub 
where we're receiving visual effects, we're receiving music, we're receiving uh, sound effect work, you know, and we're also crafting the story and then we're shipping that out and we're trying to coordinate all these people to make something that in the end actually works, right? And the level of right. talent to make a movie like Black Adam is really uh, insane. Like it, it's, uh, you know, yeah. you have people that are artists that are working on one shot for six months, you know, that we might have meetings about every other day for six months and it's beautiful. And, and with somebody like Jama, who is a true visionary director and, and, you know, he's, uh, he's also from another land. He's, he's, a global person, you know, uh, I think he grew up in Spain. And so he's very visual and it's very important to him that it be visual. And um, it was fascinating to just watch how he developed shots. And then Bill Westenhofer was our visual effects supervisor. And that guy, you can look up his credits, is also a genius. And some of the things they made were just like, I mean, it, as the shots came in, I was just like, trying to desperately open it up and add frames. <laughs> I was like, what? Why did I cut this so short? This shot is beautiful, you know? Based on that, with all the heavy visual effects that were in Black Adam, what were the challenges that you faced when editing that? When you didn't have those shots, you're dealing with green screen footage or just animatics sometimes. How? What were the challenges of that? Yeah, it. it you know, my background comes mostly from like dialogue-driven comedy, right? And it, in a movie mm-hmm. like that, you know, during the 10 week director's cut, you can basically get it to play like a movie in terms of rhythm and pace and you have all the footage or enough of it um, and, and you can do right. it quickly. In a visual effects movie, you know, the process takes every last second of the entire year long process. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the harder parts is when things are like in pre-visualized form, when they're in drawings or you know, the sort of video game animation form, which is becoming amazing what Mm -hmm. they can do. But tonally, it's very different than what it's going to look and feel like when it's the actual actors and and real people, right? And so there is Mm -hmm. a desire to, like, trim too much stuff out, right? A, you have budgetary concerns, so there's pressure to shorten things. And then B, things might not play great, because it looks like a cartoon, right? Especially on these really heavy action sequences. So you have to have faith in what the people are making. You have to kind of cling to the shots and and you have to continually make yourself imagine what it's going to be like when it's done. Like sometimes you might just have one frame of a finished shot and I'll put that in a picture-in-picture up in the corner during the scene so I can, in my brain, go, it's going to be this, it's going to be this, it's going to be this. Because your tendency is to want to make the best movie with just what you have right now. If you do that, and sometimes that does happen uh, to me, later you're kicking yourself (laughs) because you're like, oh no, this is so good, and I killed those 10 shots, you know. Um, And on the other side, you need to be fiscally responsible because somebody... Not only do they have to pay for it, but actual people have to make the shots. And you don't want to misuse your labor making a bunch of things that won't be in the movie. So that adds like a trickiness to the entire process. And basically, 
you know, a few weeks ago in, in September, we were still editing and taking shots out and trimming and adding shots and trying to amplify it. Whereas in a lot of movies, we would have been done, you know, weeks before you even go to the final mix, you know. But we were making changes yeah. oh, wow. up to the very last minute. So is this the first time you've experienced that on any of the features that you worked on? No, because uh, I did um, Skyscraper was a tra- heavy amount of visual effects. Right. Um, yeah. Red yeah. Notice, even though you can't tell, the pandemic created mm-hmm. a lot of visual effects. So in Red Notice, like a lot of the extras, we had to comp into the shots because the pandemic happened oh, and we couldn't have people working in the same room. Uh, so even the extras wow. themselves were only in pairs of two or three. So if it, there's a scene where there's 150 people, that was a giant layered visual effects shot to make it work. Oh, um, wow. And then even going way back on something like Nutty 2, The Clumps, like back in the 90s, that also had a massive amount mm-hmm. of visual effects. So I've been doing them for a long time. Um, it yeah. certainly... Black Adam was more intense than the other ones I did, you know, by a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Have you edited Red Notice remotely because of uh, COVID? Yeah. What happened on Red Notice is we were actually in Atlanta. You know, we started reading Mm -hmm. the news. We were supposed to go do an entire chase scene in Rome that they were going to shoot for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And as the news started coming in, and remember, Italy was one of the first places that got Mm -hmm. hit hard. And, and, uh, our, our Rome shoot got canceled and I started reading about it and I was like, we better start backing up the hard drives. I think we're going to get shut down. Mm-hmm. And when I first said it, everybody thought I was like overreacting. <laughs> and within like 10 days, all of a sudden we were back at home and we were trying to figure out how to cut a movie remotely. Like nobody had really, there were a few things ever cast had already existed, but there had not really been like a big movie cut like that. Um, so we had about three or four months off. And then during that time, we figured out a process and um, we were actually able to do uh, when they went back to shoot. We did all the cutting from home. And then eventually in the director's cut, me and Rawson uh, were very safe and tested. And we started going in just by ourselves and working in this giant office building and all the assistants, all the visual effects people were all working from home. And we were just in this giant office working by ourselves. And then Julian came. He, I think he got vaccinated. He jumped in. And it was just an office with me, Julian, and Rawson for a long time. And then I think by the end of the movie, everybody got vaccinated. And we were able to have about six people. The technical part isn't that hard, actually, to overcome. But like collaborating with a director like this on like a Zoom situation it's actually very fatiguing and there's something about it that's more difficult than spending time together in a room. And, um, yeah, you know, you look at people differently on camera. I have to like learn to have a, a, a poker face, uh, when we're editing on camera. Right. Or he does too, yeah. because we start reading each other. Did he like the scene? You know? And, and so that was like yeah. a, a big adjustment. Um, uh, but I prefer working in person with the director if I, if I can. For sure. There's something to be said about that interaction of being in the same room with people. Because I've definitely edited stuff in the same way where it's like the person is looking at the screen and they're all like <laughs> like this. And you're just waiting to hear like, OK, what are, what are they looking at? What's what's going on? So and then if there's a delay, then you're like, oh, my God, they hate it because they're not responding as soon as I'm asking these questions. So, yeah, that's funny. And 
I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, like, uh, since you started editing remotely, like, did you find that it was more challenging to get into the editing zone when you were, uh, you know, not in, the, in that studio space working with people together? Because I think, like, for me at least, when I switched for, from working for a post-production house to working um, as a freelancer, I had this, like, especially the first few months, I had this, like, a big, I don't know, like, a mindset shift that I, I couldn't get into the editing zone easily. Like, it took me, like, sometimes three hours to finally start editing, you know? I was just, like, mm-hmm. delaying it, postponing. Uh, so what was your experience with it? Did you experience something like that? Super interesting. I had already cut some things in, in my... I had a, a pretty good home editing office set up. And I had already cut a yeah. movie, uh, a very small movie called Demoted, and I did like a little horror film for a friend, like a very low budget horror film that I did at my house. So I had already kind of gone through the hurdle. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like, I got the dog barking and he wants to come in here and, you know, I'm at home and there's yeah. a mailman and there's a thing and it's very different than work. Yeah. But I had already figured out yeah. how to kind of defeat all those things and sort of keep in a work style rhythm. And so when we were doing dailies on Red Notice – and I was working at home, I loved it because I could get up at six in the morning. They were shooting Atlanta. Emily Freund, who is my assistant, she would have also get up early. She'd throw the uh, dailies together. I would watch them uh, uh, while I was on my treadmill. So I'd get my workout in. I'm watching dailies yeah. at 6 a.m. Yeah. I'm going. Yeah. I'd call Ross and, you know, I'd watch the dailies. I'd call the director. And then I might, like... Um, uh, go for a walk and exercise a little bit and think about the dailies. And then I'd come back and I'd edit them and I'd take lunch and I'd eat it with my dog. And then I'd come back and edit some more. And even at night, you know, I might put on like the baseball game or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And But I would sit here and I'd put in sound effects or music into my scenes, you know. And, and so I'd get to have dinner with my wife and everything, but I'd still kind of be working till about 10 at night as opposed to like just coming home because time to go home. Right. Um, so that part of it, I loved, but after we got past dailies and we got into the director's cut and now suddenly like a lot of media is coming in all the time. We're getting visual effects. We're having to interact with music editors and sound editors. There's lots of meetings, there's visual effects meetings, and there's all those things at that point. Like I missed having the crew with me together in the same building because they do a lot for me. And so suddenly there was a lot of things that I don't normally have to do, like moving media and making sure the Avid works that I couldn't have people do. I mean, they would jump in and stuff. So what happened was that really interrupted my creative flow and, and also piling on that the director, he actually did come to my house and work a few times. We actually watched red notice for the first time in my editing room at home, he was nice enough to come to my house okay. and watch his movie for the first time in, in my editing room, which was wild because I don't knew normally yeah. nobody comes here. But um, uh, so I would say like in the f- future, like if people want me to do assemblies and, and dailies for my house, I would be more than happy to do that. Uh, I mm-hmm. love that. But as soon as we get in director cut, I want to go back into the office with all the support. And 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 Black Adam, we're all in a big office. 
uh, uh, together. Mm. Uh, but we were masked and we would stay in our rooms like 90% of the time. But having that network yeah. that we're all working on, the computer drives, uh, was super helpful. Yeah. By the way, a treadmill is on my shopping list. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I tell you, you know, uh, at, you know, when I was in my 30s, I could just like, you know, work on a movie and gain 20 pounds and take three weeks off and lose weight without even trying. But now I have to try. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to work at it to stay healthy. Mike, I, I, I've noticed you have like a like a gap, like a five year gap in your credits on IMDb. Uh, like, did you ever experience like a like a, you know, like a creative uh, burnout? Oh, I, actually, no. I was working that whole time around the year 2001. I was kind mm -hmm. of stuck as an, an assistant editor or an additional editor. And I wasn't moving up mm -hmm. as the main editor of features somewhere around. I want to think it was around Undercover Brother, maybe. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah. I, then I got an offer to cut a TV show called Judging Amy. And it was with some mm -hmm. friends that, that I actually had worked with on The Wonder Years. And uh, I, was, mm -hmm. I oh. wasn't going through creative burnout. But what I was going uh -huh. through was a burnout in that I was about 40 years old and I was feeling like I had no life. That I had just been working mm -hmm. 16 hours a day on all these movies. So uh, Judging Amy was a wonderful TV show with great actors, but it was also really um, uh, humane. And like I could like do that job in a short amount of hours per day. So I actually got to have a life and I got to have some weekends off. And so I went there. I was only going to do it for one season, but I enjoyed having that life so much that I did it for about uh, four and a half years. And and I was also teaching editing during those years. And there was a moment around 2005 or 2006. I had met my wife during that time. We had gotten married. And uh, I was wondering, am I ever going to do another movie again? Because I was pretty happy. I was, by the way, also in great shape. I was like... I, I was feeling good. My wife was happy. Everybody was happy. And uh, <laughs> one day I was sitting at home. Uh, this would have been around 2006. And uh, my friend and mentor, Bill Kerr, called, who is a fantastic editor. If you ever, if he'll ever give you an interview, you should interview him. He's a brilliant guy. And uh, uh, we did a lot of movies together, starting with Tommy Boy all the way through, uh, I think Bridesmaids was our last one we did together. And he called me up. He's like, Sal, uh, you've been loafing. <laughs> and I'm like, what? He's like, he goes, uh, I, I got a movie. I want you to uh, come and work on it with me. And, and I'm like, uh, oh, uh, is it good? He's like, well, you read the script and you tell me. So he sent me the script and I sat at my kitchen table and I read this script mm -hmm. and I looked at my wife and I said, uh, you're not going to like this. <laughs> She said, what? And I go, uh, I, th I think I got to give movies one more chance. And my wife, who's a big movie fan, she looked at me. And this is why I, one of the many reasons I love her. She said, you absolutely have to do this. You're an artist. You're talented. And you should be cutting movies because you're really good at it. And uh, it's an amazing thing to have that kind of support. The movie was super bad. And uh, I read awesome. that script at my table and I was like, 
I got to go do this. I was like, this is like every high school movie I ever loved. This is like every story I ever loved. It's R-rated. It's insane. It's going to be amazing. So I went, uh, I I gave up my uh, freedom. And and I went back and that turned into this incredible run of doing all in a row. We did super bad for getting Sarah Marshall. I love you, man. Get him the Greek, Bridesmaids, Hangover 2, and, and then I did We're the Millers. Like So that all happened like, you know, mm. after that break. And, and I really think, uh, Peter, that that break of doing the TV show and having a life, not only did I become a much better editor during those five years, because I got to do a lot of editing. You know, TV is a lot of editing in a very fast um yeah but i also got to live my life and like have more to say in the editing room you know i Mm -hmm. I developed as a human Mm -hmm. being more and and, um Mm -hmm. and it also gave me a deeper appreciation of my opportunities as a feature editor so when i had that what i call the second chance i i went for Mm -hmm. it in a way that i wasn't capable of doing uh the first time and and i think that's Mm -hmm. why it happened Mm -hmm. for me you know so I wanted to ask you, because you're an additional editor, as an additional editor, is it usually like the editors, hey, I need help with this, or I want you to come because I know that you're, I love the creativity that you have and your skills, so I want to bring you on as an additional editor for this, or how does that work as yeah. when it comes to like being brought on as an additional editor? You know, it's a, a, additional editor can mean a lot of things, depending on why you are the additional editor. You know, sometimes... It's somebody that comes on and recuts a movie that's not working. Sometimes it's just somebody who helped out. There's a lot of different things. But in the case of Bill and I, you know, we started working together on Tommy Boy. Um, I was uh, uh, the first assistant editor and I had only worked on maybe one or two movies before then. I was mostly mostly did TV. And Bill, that was his first movie that he edited. He was a TV guy uh, and he had worked with the director, Pete Siegel. So the real truth of it in in our case is Bill and I worked on these movies together all the way back on Tommy Boy. He was mentoring me, but I was also watching cuts with him every night and we would argue over the movie and we'd make stuff. And I wasn't doing as much cutting back in the early days. But by the time we got to like uh, Nutty to the Clumps, I was also cutting a lot of the scenes and I earned the additional editor credit. And Bill was very generous to, to give it to me. So like on things like Superbad and, and Sarah Marshall, I was cutting lots of the movie under the, the mentorship of Bill. And we were also, mm. you know, making the movie by collaborating and pushing each other. It was an interesting dynamic because he's a super talented guy. And, you know, I would cut mm-hmm. a scene and he would go, yeah, that's pretty good, but I'm going to make it better. And I would go, yeah, well, while you're doing that, I'm going to recut your scene and make it better. And he, you know, <laughs> and then sometimes we would fight for the other guy's stuff. I'd go, no, you're not putting my version in. You're putting your version in. And he'd go, your version's better. And I'd go, I hate you. And i go, I love you. And then, you know, we'd laugh, you know. And so that that creative friction, you know, uh, ended up making a lot of a lot of stuff, which is part of why I always, when I'm working with directors and creative people, like, you know, I do it with a lot of love with them. Like, I respect them and I love them and we're friends. But I'm also not shy 
to to sort of be uh, 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 to challenge each other creatively and to be like and yeah. to to yeah. push the limits and argue and be passionate, right? And like Bill and I certainly had that. So um, he was kind enough. Uh, uh, eventually to give me a, a front credit, I think, on Genma the Greek. And, you know, obviously, like, those credits, you cannot buy credits like that. And, um, you know, you have to earn them. Yeah. And and, uh, and Bill made me earn them. And, and uh, but it, you know, again, <laughs> by the time I got to be the editor and the only editor, mm-hmm. I was very ready for the job. That's great. Tommy Boy, also one of my wife's favorite movies. I, I, I really like your wife. She's smart. <laughs> Tommy Boy, you know, that was uh, it, it was a real learning lesson because, you know, when we were Bill and I were up in Canada again, we hadn't made a lot of movies. We were kind of the outsider people. You know, people were like, who are these guys yeah. like editing this comedy movie? You know, and the, the dailies were amazing. Like they were we were oh, laughing bet. so hard as the dailies came in and it actually Bill did it a great job on the uh, assembly of the movie. It was funny right from day one. It tested well, everybody we showed it to loved it. Um, And then it came out and the critics Mm -hmm. savaged it. I mean, they just destroyed it. Right. And it didn't make a lot of money. It, it did. It was a box office failure. And and at that point we were like, wow, we, you know, what happened? But then, in the aftermarket, which was VHS back then, it uh, developed a huge fan base and a huge following. Yeah. So, like a lesson, I'm very happy actually that that happened on one of the early movies because one of the things we learned is like you can't control what the critics say, and you can't right. control the box right. office because there's a lot of things that determine whether a movie is a box office hit and not many of them actually have to do with the movie because nobody's seen it yet right so so like that's really about the marketing and the the premise and the stars and things that we can't really Mm -hmm. control but what we can control is how the characters are in the film how the movie holds up over time right but and the way we can control this is by not taking the easy way out not doing silly things, but developing characters that people want to see over and over again. And so I don't always do this on every movie I make, but what I do try to do is make movies that people want to live with for a long time. So I try to make them so they're not disposable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, I think you've nailed that on the head because a lot of your, a lot of the movies you worked on are that with your hands on Superbad and obviously with Tommy Boy and Get Him to the Greek and Sarah Marshall. Those are all movies that are, in a way, have a cult following and they'll always have a cult following. So, you know, my hat's off to you, Mike, Thank you. And, sure. and that's, you know, those those are all Mike and Bill. And then I've taken what we did and I've actually done a little bit more commercial movies, but I've tried to apply the things we learned on all those films to like the bigger action okay. comedies, which is... It's difficult, but you can still try to do it, you know, uh, uh, by how you, what choices yeah. you make. So then that leads me into this is you worked on comedy so much. So then how was or what was the challenge then going into like action movies or, you know, the comedy action or what was there anything different with that? Or what were the challenges of working on stuff like that? It, it was massive. I mean, first of all, you know, we've had action in, in the comedies for a long time. So I, I never had a. Right curve of cutting action or anything like that but 
you know, when you have a, a, a good example of it would be uh, if you take uh, I did a Netflix movie called Spencer Confidential with Mark Wahlberg. Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if you take a movie like Superbad, you, what you have in that movie is hundreds of laughs. Right. And what we're doing in that movie mm-hmm. is we're going, we're a comedy, we're a comedy, we're a comedy, 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 comedy. And then when you're not ready, we go emotion. And all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, I felt emotion at the escalator in Superbad. How did they do that, right? On something like Spencer Confidential, which has more action and not as many jokes, we're actually doing the opposite. What we're doing is going, we're a drama. We're cutting this guy's head off. We're a drama. This is tense. There's tension. There's tension. There's tension. Joke. Oh, you weren't ready for it. Boom, big laugh. No, no, no. Forget about the jokes. We're yeah. a drama, 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 drama. Joke. <laughs> Right. So it's yeah. kind of like if you the best example of it is not one of my movies uh, like I, uh, the best is uh, uh, Frank Curiosity was the editor of Die Hard. Right. And if you look at Die Hard, mm-hmm. Die Hard is like the bomb action movie from the 80s. But it has like eight giant laughs in it. Right. Like maybe yeah, even absolutely. less. Right. So people remember it as a funny mm-hmm. movie. So basically when you're doing the action, it's like a balance of tone and, and like amount of comedy, like in something like Black Adam, you don't want to have a joke at the end of every scene. Like it wouldn't feel appropriate right. to the moment. Right. So what you do is you find your right. little spots where a tension breaker or an icebreaker is fun for the audience. And you sort of try to create that thread. Right. And so um, mm-hmm. the the I always look at movies as two parts. Like if you're doing a comedy you're basically making two movies. You're making the comedy and you're making the movie underneath. And when they work, the ones that you like are because the comedy works great and the movie underneath it works. If you don't get the movie underneath it to work, you just have a funny disposable movie, right? And and so then in the action movies, it's kind of, again, the opposite. It's like you're making that action movie work but you also want the comedy to be the cherry on top, right? So if you took something like Bridesmaids and Bridesmaids was just as funny as it is now, but you didn't feel emotion for Annie at the end, like when she, like the wedding happens and all the stuff, it would not be a movie that holds up over time. It would just be a movie that was funny, right? And the same thing, if you take Todd Phillips' movie, The Hangover, which I didn't work on, if it was just as funny as it was, but you didn't like the adventure that those characters went on, that he did such a good job of making actually work, that turn where it turns that Zach Galifianakis is the one that drugged him was massive in that movie. It worked unbelievably great, right? If he didn't make that work, right. it wouldn't have been a movie that held up so well, right? So when you have comedy, you're automatically doing more than like an example of a comedy movie that I worked on that doesn't do more than one thing is going all the way back to Naked Gun 33 and a third. Right. Those those sort of parody Mm -hmm. movies. They're only doing the one. There's no emotion in those movies. It's false emotion. Mm -hmm. And they're very funny. And they're three laughs a minute. But and, 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 you know, those guys were so funny that they could do that and make it hold up over time. But generally, those only do one thing. I think the co- co- comedy comedy elements are kind of like needed in any movie. I think uh, even in like like dark drama, you still want to have those like 
those moments that make you smile inside all the beat at least, right? J- James L. Brooks, a- as good as it gets, right? It makes you laugh. Mm-hmm. It makes you cry. It, 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 you know, to me, those are the best movies, right? When a movie can do all of those things, right? Um, Jim Cummings, like one of my favorite directors, uh, he, he, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said something like, you know, you need to make people laugh or or people will laugh at it or something like that, right? I, I get you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you don't make them laugh with you, they'll laugh at you. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, a, that's a better version of that, yes, of, of, yes. of what he said. Sure. Yeah. sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Mike, could, could you, because like, you know, a lot of us, like me included, want to get, you know, on that high level of editing big films, right? But at the same time, I think that it comes with cost to some extent, to some extent at least, at least. So I was wondering, like, could you like, you know, uh, walk us through your typical day when working on a film like Black Adam? Yeah. From the moment you wake up, basically, to the moment you go to bed? Yeah. Uh, I mean, first of all, it does come at personal cost because to make a movie, I, I guess maybe there are some people who can do this job that don't have to sacrifice as much of their life as I do. Uh, but for me to make a movie, it, it takes a lot of focus. Mm-hmm. And I, I could tell you, um, there, the, it's not a um, coincidence then my career in films mm-hmm. uh, elevated after I met my wife who, um, you oh. know, is so amazing and like takes care of so many things so that I basically only get to think about the movie while I'm on it. And, and like, that's like a luxury that a lot of people don't have. Like, you know, she makes sure that like th- my car registration is up to date and <laughs> things like that, you know? So wow. I'm like super wow. spoiled. Um, and I, I love her for it. And you are. <laughs> she, she loves doing it because she actually thinks that making movies are important. Um, and, and I do too. And, and um, you know, we like putting it out there. So my typical day on a movie starts this way. Uh, I usually wake up around 6 a.m., uh, I it takes me about a half an hour to get the blood flowing and my brain going. And by about yeah. six 30, I have a trainer that comes to my house and we will train mm-hmm. for an hour. And we usually do that four or five times a week at seven 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, I jump in the shower, I hit my car. And as I'm driving to the office, I'm doing phone calls and, and uh, I can text while I'm driving audibly, answering texts and stuff, mm-hmm. so that when I hit the office at about uh, you know eight thirty, uh, everything's already kind of up and running and going. And what I do is I go in, I try to clear away as many distractions as possible. I try to look when visual effects meetings or other meetings might be, and I try to create blocks of time where I can like work yeah. and hyper-focus and focus on the movie, which is harder to do mm. on a movie like Black Adam than you would think, right? Like it's harder to find mm-hmm. that time. Um, I, I'm very good with my assistants, so I train people to create that bubble for me and like not to be like banging mm-hmm. on my door every five seconds, right? Um, and then I go mm-hmm. in there and in the morning, I try to do heavy lifting brain work. Like in the morning, I'm trying to do big problem solving. Like, you know, uh, I'm trying to go like, why doesn't this scene feel emotional? How do I recut this? What is this? How do we do this problem? I'm doing those kind of things. 
Uh, I do that all the way to lunch. I, um, I'm actually very fortunate that I have like my food gets delivered to me the night before in a cooler. And so I don't really go out Mm -hmm. to lunch with anybody or anything. I just have my food. I eat it while I'm working at the machine. Uh, And then usually after lunch, I'll go outside and take a 20 minute or 30 minute walk. Often thinking about the uh, stuff I just edited. I come back into the afternoon. Hopefully that's when the early afternoon, the meetings are. And then when the meetings end, you know, usually about three or four, I'll go back to work and I'll try to work until like, you know, if I'm at an office, maybe till like four until eight or nine or 10, um, you know, and generally as the day goes on, I segue from heavy brain power things to things that are maybe easier, like uh, watching other people's scenes and giving notes or listening to music or approving visual effect yeah. shots, mm-hmm. like things that aren't that sort of puzzle thing, because at a certain point mm-hmm. during the day, yeah. uh, I can't do it anymore. You know, <laughs> like I'm just tired. Um, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, yeah. the other thing is that's been a little twist on this is because we can now, you know, access material from our houses uh, instead of staying till nine or 10 or 11 or whatever. A lot of times I'll leave at eight o'clock after the traffic's done, I'll go home and then I, I might sit at home and look at some of those things online until, you know, it's 10 or, or whatever. And then a lot of times I'll go in the house and watch a one hour TV show with my wife, which she picks because I can't at that point pick. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and then I'll hopefully fall asleep around 1130 without um, dreaming about the movie, which is often what I <laughs> It's like in my head, uh, and, and that's pretty much a typical day. Wow! What TV shows have you seen during editing uh, Black Adam? Uh, actually, we've been <laughs> we've been pretty good. Uh, you know, uh, all, wow! All your typical ones. Uh, you know, one one that we love is the uh, War of the Worlds. Is great the the new War of the Worlds, which is on Epics. Uh, Yeah, uh, we just watched the Lord of the Rings one, which I thought was fantastic. Mm-hmm. We uh, and, and we're gonna watch the Dragon House of Dragon. We're gonna, you know, we're caught up on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We watched yeah. Severance yeah. Uh, on Apple mm-hmm. TV. Lots of shows. We we like, you know, uh, I don't watch as many comedies. You know, it's mostly those kind of dramas usually, and I I like. Uh, audibly quiet shows, you know, at nighttime. So, like, my wife likes, like, The Amazing Race. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but that show's like, and I'm like, no, I'm like, no, watch that before I get home. I'm like, you know, so so I like these kind of dramas where it's like, you know, you know, like something audibly quiet because I'm doing these loud, you know, I'm in a thing all day, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, with that being said, with that being said, in regards to your day, we talk about mindset on the podcast a lot. So we're curious, it's like you're about to start a project. So do you have to like, do you use a lot of references or how do you get into the mindset to like edit something like Skyscraper or Black Adam or any of the, the, the projects that you worked on? Is there something different or uh, I don't know how, what I can use. I'm losing my words, but basically like a mindset that you get into to prepare yourself or to do your best work, so to speak. Yes. I have a great answer for this. And it's going to blow your mind. <laughs> I can tell you. I, I say this knowing, okay. I don't know how other people do this, but 
Uh, I am pretty much an all immersive into the movie kind of person. And so um, once I take on a project, I, of course, start studying not only the actors and their previous performances. So I'll watch some of their other movies, but also, you know, the material and, and what the movie's about, you know, and what the character's about. And to me, I think the most important part of the movie is not the story. I think it's the characters. And uh, what I focus on most is the characters. And part of this comes from, remember, I told you at the beginning, the very beginning of this to me was I was a person who was performing and on stage, right? Um, so I was making characters and I was actually doing it. So you know how there's actors who are like method actors and people make jokes about yeah. stuff? Well, in a weird way, yeah, yeah, I consider yeah. myself a method editor. So like what happens to it. me when I'm working on a movie is those people and that world become real to me. And those characters mm-hmm. become real to me. And as I'm editing it, I'm trying to be all of those characters. So I basically carry oh, in me this group of people. Now, of course, I'm taking my cues off of the actors and the writers and the director of what they did. But by the end of the movie, somebody will say, well, maybe, you know, maybe Will Sawyer would say this. And I go, he wouldn't say that. He would say this. And they're like, how do you know that? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, because I know Will Sawyer. Because I know this guy. I know this guy. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and like, yeah, yeah, and yeah, sometimes yeah. the director or the writer will be, you're wrong. He's not that guy, right? But but um, in my mind, they are real people in a real thing. Uh, I mean, one of the sad yeah. things is that my whole life I was a voracious reader of fiction. Um, but mm-hmm. when I'm doing movies, I cannot read fiction because I can't have the other voices in my head. So I, I read a lot, but I read a lot of nonfiction, you know, so that's how I kind of do it. So like I'm trying to connect with them. I'm trying to find them and I'm trying to make them feel like the real people, even if they're in a fantastical world. Yeah. Have you seen, by the way, Jim and Andy on Netflix? No. It's like a, it's like a doc where Jim Carrey, um, he. Oh, oh, I would love to see that. Yeah, yeah. First of all, Andy Kaufman is one of my heroes growing up. And and also, uh, uh, Jim Carrey is brilliant. And I I, I yeah. think I may have seen that. It's it's a documentary talking about he how he played Andy Kaufman, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How right, he took right. methods acting, acting to extreme. Yes. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, which is fascinating because Andy was also like, basically his entire life was method acting. And took it yeah. to an incredible yeah. extreme as well, you know. Yeah, I'm certainly not like those guys. Like, it, you know, it's a slighter thing in editorial. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not like talking in their voice and stuff. But you know, in my head, I'm like, you mm-hmm. know, if you came in and watched me edit, I might be mouthing the words and I don't even know it, right? Like, I'm playing something mm-hmm. down. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> that was that was going to be my next question is how often are you speaking out loud talking to, to just to the screen or to the characters on the, on on the screen all the time <laughs> yeah there i know there's a lot there have been plenty of times when my door flies open and somebody goes are you okay <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like yes i'm fine yeah there? sure i'm you know i'm hitting the desk i'm you know and, and a, a lot of times I, it's about the battle is with me. I'm, I'm like, I want to make this better, you know? And, and so, yeah. um, 
you know, I want to elevate this material. And so I'm like, you know, in some ways I, I compare editing to like running, you know, running is about overcoming the pain of running. That's how you keep running. That's how you run faster. Yeah. You have to overcome the pain of it. And with editing, it's a mental fatigue, right? It's a mental challenge. And so your mm-hmm. brain is constantly telling you it's good enough. Don't, you know, don't touch that one. You did that one. Somebody liked it. Move on. Don't do that, right? And, yeah. and like, so a lot of the challenge is pushing and pushing and pushing, you know, to, to try to make it even better and better and better. Such a good anecdote. I get it. I, I used to run. I, I, yeah. I, I don't if do you it, run, you understand that often, but I used to run and I understand, like, I understand what you mean. Yeah. I used to run too. Then I got the script to super bad and now I just walk on a treadmill. <laughs> well, I'm watching dailies. So that's yes, still a, I you know. know. What's next for you? If you have some projects going on uh, that you can share, of course, and then where pe- people can follow your work. Actually, right this minute, I'm in the middle of just doing mm-hmm. a favor for somebody and, and doing some cutting on a movie that I can't really talk about. Um, it's a comedy okay, movie. Sure. And, you know, a lot of times I go into comedies and I just try to look at scenes and help find stuff, you know, but uh, which is awesome and very lucky. And I'm actually doing it for my house. So it's a real kind of fun gig and um, helping out some friends. Uh, which I always love to do. Uh, I was supposed to be yeah. taking this time off and resting. So th- this, uh, <laughs> this ends in November. And so I'm going to take some time off over the holidays. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of exciting things like on the horizon, but none of them are real yet. Mm-hmm. So I haven't really looked into 2023. Uh, but... Um, I hopefully will get a chance to do something where I can learn and I can grow. Uh, I don't like to make the same thing over and over again. And that's why you see with my <clears> credits, <throat> they change a lot. People are like, what is a Mike sale? Yeah, movie? Yeah. And I'm like, a lot of it's a movie yeah. that I could get that, that that's different from the other movies that I did, you know, and yeah. that's sort of ha- yeah. what I like yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, and people, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm easy to find them on Twitter uh, and they can uh, communicate with me there. Uh, uh, it's I can't do a lot of phone talking. I can't uh, do a lot of communicating during the day, but I do try to help people. I love mentoring people, and I do try to help people with their projects or their things when I can. You know, sadly, often I can't. Um, you know, you're one of the first interviews. I actually stopped doing interviews for eight years, uh, I think. Yeah, Maybe yeah. I, that could be off by a, a year or two, but... I just um yeah, yeah. Ricky was actually yeah, yeah sorry for interrupting yeah. like Ricky was actually like before we interviewed we, we you know jumped on the call he was like I can't understand why there is no like mic interviews on the internet yeah, <laughs> yeah I, there's nothing I did I stopped doing them because um I didn't feel like I had a good grasp of how to talk about editing it's a hard thing to talk about mm. and I wasn't sure yeah. anymore what I wanted to say about it Um, and, and the mm-hmm. thing I think that happens a lot in, in editing interviews is that it sounds like you're saving the movie or you're fixing the movie. And I hate that because mm-hmm. our job is to elevate the movie, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you found a way to elevate the movie doesn't mean you're, something was broken or somebody mm-hmm. didn't do a good job, it was, right? It, it was and and yeah. so yeah. it was I always it. kind of sounding like that. And I just didn't like mm-hmm. it. And so it wasn't until recently mm-hmm. – that I felt that I had some more to say about editing. And one of the main things, and I'm so glad you asked about it 
is um, I really did want to talk about mentorship and I wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. you know, the good fortune I had and the people I met when I started out. I think that's really important. And as I sort of head into the last 10 or so years of my career, I'm really focusing on that and passing the, the art along. And um, mm-hmm. so that means a lot to me. And that's why I want to do some interviews uh, again. That's great. Well, like, we're honored you. to have it had you on. Honor, exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, you guys are fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Mark. And I can't wait to listen to the podcast. The thing that stood out to me the most is how Mike does the most difficult difficult items on his to-do list first, right? Mm-hmm. Early in the morning. This way he has this feeling of accomplishment early on and then he progresses with easier tasks. He's gradually like, you know, changing the difficulty level of what he's mm-hmm. doing throughout the day. And I think it's brilliant. I think it's one of those ta- tactics that um, make you more productive um, mm-hmm. as an editor. Um, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, and that's not the first time that we've heard that either, which is also heartening because if we're not doing that right now, we should be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and I speak for myself Definitely. that I know that I'm always doing heavy lifting throughout the day. But yeah, yeah. that's something. Yeah. Uh, the thing that really stood out to me was how he was the assistant editor on the Garbage Pail movie and the Garbage Pail Kids movie, which is a terrible movie and you should see it regardless. But I thought that was pretty awesome. He said that he's proud of it, right? Yeah, and that he's he proud of it. His, One of the yeah. worst movies of all time. Um, but also in regards to that, because he was an assistant editor on that film, there's the advantages to being an assistant editor. Not to say that you need to be an assistant editor to be an editor or a great editor, but there are advantages to knowing how an editor works and also... Will, which will inform your game as an editor in regards to project management and will help you as a mentor in regards to like your assistant editor so that you can bring them up with you so that you can level up their game as well. I think that those are, those are huge. Essentially, you're, you're, you're sending the elevator back down, right? Uh, Correct. You're proactively working on the skills of people that work for you so that right. they can be in your position one day. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that really stood out to me, which is, we didn't really, well, we did talk about it was that mm-hmm. this was one of the first interviews that Mike had done in, in eight oh, years, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. which explains why when I was doing research, I couldn't find <laughs> anything about Mike or him doing interviews at all. So yeah, we're yeah, really yeah. happy that we were one of the first that he was able to talk to and that we got to talk to him. So that was, that was really cool because Mike, as you saw and can hear how gregarious he is and, you know, he's just really funny and, you know. Yeah, a lot of knowledge to share. I, I can picture myself drinking beer with him. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's great. He's great. Or any beverage, to be precise. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like, uh, this is the second to last episode in that um, season. At least that's the plan. We'll see. There might be another one, but like, right. we'll see. Uh, anyway, as always, we want to hear from you. There is this big pipe link in the description. Visit it, like record us a message about like what you like in the podcast. What do you want us to do differently? All of these things, we're here to listen. We want to make the next season in in 2023 better. So your, vo- your voice really matters. We want to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, and if you are afraid or don't like the way your voice sounds, you can also email us. And also you can follow us on Instagram at cut to reveal. Um, also, Peter has a new edition of the editing chef. So if you oh, want yeah. information about that, there'll be also a link in the description. You should jump on that if you can, because he's really filled out 
the the course. So it's much better than it was previously. Not to say that it wasn't good before, but now it's even better if you can even stand it. It's not not only about productivity anymore. Like there is this library of videos, a massive library, like four hours plus of content about productive editing. Uh, but there are also things like editing quirks. So videos about editing techniques that will be published every other week. There is also this community aspect, live sessions coming up, things like that, like all cool stuff. So if you want to learn, if you want to grow as an editor uh, with me, with other people in the in the program, uh, then yeah, I, I'd love to see you there. Yeah, so get into it, people. Other than that, that's about it. So thanks for joining us and uh, we'll hope to see you next time. <laughs> See you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, or subscribe on whatever platform you've listened to this on. Your reviews help other editors to discover the show and tell your friends. Also, if you have any questions or comments, leave us a message at SpeakPipe. There's a link in the description or email us at podcast at cuttothepoint.com. Thank you.